0: Welcome to this episode of the Public Circle Podcast. My name is Adam Olson, the member of the Legislative Assembly for Saanich North and the Islands. In this episode of the podcast, I return back to where it all started, having conversations with fascinating people in my riding. This time, I head over to Salt Spring Island to meet with folk musician Luke Wallace. Luke's a social justice and environmental activist He's quite a guy, and I really enjoyed having a conversation with him. We have a wide-ranging conversation where we cover a whole pile of topics, social justice, environmental issues, Indigenous rights issues, we talk about BC Hydro, and we talk about upcoming elections. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Luke Wallace.
1: I'm a folk singer. I'm 26 now. I live on Salt Spring Island, and I grew up in Vancouver, and uh, I spend my time full-time now driving around the province meeting with communities and and playing shows and performing. Uh, I collaborate with lots of nonprofit organizations and frontline communities working to protect the systems that keep them going. Uh, and that's, you know, been, been years of fundraiser concerts and, uh, supporting the folks fighting the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, I did, you know, a fair bit of work around Lelou Island. Um, and, and it's just kind of continued and has developed into a pretty cool and, uh, Unique career path, I think, right now in the time that we're in, I'm I'm really feeling blessed to be able to to go out there and not compromise on the conversations that I'm having or the things that I get to write and sing about. Um, and there seems to be a growing appetite for it. And so, uh, you know, having done this for now almost ten years of writing music and gigging, I'm uh, slowly feel like I'm catching a wave, and uh, it's a really Bad time to be a musician, but a really good time to be me, I think. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I think, well, first of all, uh, it must be weird to be able to say that you've been doing anything for 10 years. I've been, in, I've been an elected official for 11 years. Yeah. I was saying the other day to someone, I'm like, oh, yeah, I got elected first in 2008. And I thought, whoa, I've been doing something, the same thing. Yeah. for the last decade so same with you been doing something for a decade now and
1: when you get pretty good at it you know it's like <laughs> I, I th- I'm reading a few books right now that are just really speaking to the to, to the, there isn't really much to innate skill or there's no such thing really as a genius it's people who do stuff for long enough that they get pretty good at it and and I think you know whether it's music or or elected office or anything else people uh you know time and practice really does something for you so
0: yeah, absolutely. And when you do it from your heart, it makes it a heck of a lot easier. You don't need a script. You don't need anybody to write anything mm-hmm. for you. You don't need anyone to point you in the right direction. As long as it's coming from you know, that center mass right there at, at the heart, yeah. uh, it becomes pretty easy. I remember when I first started to do videos, when video was taking off in politics, and I'd have this script in front of me, and, and you know, I'm looking at the camera and reading this, this script that's going past and trying to figure out how to balance the two. And over the years, I realized as long as I'm speaking from right here, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It just flows out, and yeah. you know the same thing. Your music's starting to flow uh, yeah. better for you, and you've always spoken from your
1: heart, though. Sure, but people can really detect honesty, and I'm starting to realize that 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 it's not about trying to be something or or seem a certain way. That it's just it's about being completely honest and authentic. And and again, no matter what you're doing, people detect that, and we have pretty high BS detectors, and so uh, and, and I've always noticed that. And in, in your politics, and it's why I respect you is. Is because I'm I'm less concerned with what you're saying and more concerned with the authenticity with which you say it, and I can always get behind someone who's really authentic in their in their beliefs and standpoints.
0: Well, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of politics and governance, and I think uh, I think that we need to get back to governing, which uh, which you know is a lot more about the information that we see, receive the evidence that we get, um, and is a lot more informed than just hey, how do I scoop up a handful of votes here and a handful mm-hmm. of votes there, which is the politics mm-hmm. uh, side of it. And, you know, I stood and introduced my son in the legislature uh, earlier this week because he's out of school right now. Uh, there's a strike going on over on the Saanich Peninsula. And, um, and I said to him, I said, you know, my kid, I said to, the, to the, uh, my MLA colleagues as I'm introducing him and he's sitting up in the gallery, I said, you know, my son's getting introduced... Uh, to governance, but he's also getting introduced to all the politics as well. And you know, stripping back the politics, I think, is is really impor- important in the job that I'm in, and focusing more on how do we govern this place properly so that we're not, you know, eroding all of the things that support life, basically. Yeah. And this is a to the center of your work as well. And yeah. and the the folks singing the songs that you've done a lot about nature and a lot about how we interact with the world around us. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about your music first and then we'll talk about the music industry a little bit sure. but talk about your music sure. first.
1: One yeah I mean I got I think we have equal number of questions, but you know I, I write these songs that are, that are yeah really rooted in the protection of place and in, in our connection as people to the planet and um, just trying to often really directly remind people, that, that there is no separation between us and the planet Earth, mm-hmm. that we are exactly the same as it in every way. Uh, and it's just our own delusions and ignorance that create division between us and, and the systems that keep us going and the planet itself and the soil. And, um, and it's funny because as that consciousness raises in the world and in this part of the world in particular, I see uh, a real appetite for music that, that addresses those issues. Um, I think as people are going, oh wow, this you know the way that we've done this for the last two hundred years as Western civilization really isn't working, and and I think people are cluing into the fact that at the root of that is the division between self and the planet, um, and so I'm just really keen to continue honing and writing those songs that that help people ask those questions and maybe help them gain clarity around what it is that we need to change within our within our systems, and I think your point about you know the difference between governance and politics is a is a really big one and could be expanded to, to all of our individual lives. You know, it's the difference between between being and seeming to be uh, mm. and the short-term and the long-term and the well-being of all versus the well-being of a few. And um, I mean, the, I have no answers. These are just some of the questions that have been driving my music for a while now, and, and I'm just continually blown away. The more that I play and the bigger shows that I get to play, the more people I realize are right in line with that. Uh, which isn't the message we get from the media very often. It's not the message that the last federal election conveyed. you know, that was just the division that happened there is completely the opposite of what I experience when I go out and tour. Small town, BC, industrial communities, whatever you want to call it, there's people who get that that we can't live without a healthy land uh, and that that they really are so beautifully tied together. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if as I continue to tour, I just find more of that because so far that's all I've found. After the first week
0: of that federal election, I said uh, to one of my um, colleagues uh, in the legislature, I said, I think that if all the federal leaders got together, they would agree that they would love to just scrub that first week, shut her down, start over <laughs> again mm-hmm. maybe. and, and it and it And as it unfolded, it just got worse mm-hmm. and worse and worse. And people who I've seen as being... Completely engaged in the political system became disengaged and dispirited yeah. by that election and uh the, the the real problem with that is is the the quality of our democracy and people's and people's um, confidence in democracy during that federal election uh really plummeted mm. uh, I think p- people lost a lot of confidence in uh in in the quality of or due to the lack of quality in the debate, yeah. uh, and more just you know taking people and running them through the ringer and trying to trying to tear them apart rather than what I think we need to be doing—that's building each other up, yeah. disagreeing, yeah. but not tearing each other apart. We we can't afford to be doing that anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm hoping I'm hoping the political class and whoever's running in these elections and whoever is running and funding them will realize that what we've ended up with serves nobody it serves really none of the parties i'm not interested in a time where we need massive social change and unity to face the coming problems to have a stagnant government which is probably what we're going to have for the next little while now um i think the conservatives have a right to be po'd because because of the first-past-the-post system and how they ended up with nothing. I think the Greens have a right to be PO'd because you look at their popular vote and the amount of power that they ended up with. And, and I think it's all, it really can all be described, as you said, in that, in that first week when it came out and it was like, oh, this is what this is going to be? Like, how do you all not realize that this isn't serving anyone? You're all losing when we do this. Um, and we are all losing. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you had any insights with how it ended up with you know, where we go from here.
0: Well, I, I no, I don't nothing more than what you've just said. I mean, I think that the the system and how we count votes and we can go around and around and around on this doesn't serve the people. I you know, I've I've said uh a few times now in the last little bit uh in in public speaking events that I've been at. You know, when was the last time that you were asked as a citizen uh if your government and if your model of governance is serving you?
1: Mm.
0: You know, uh we 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 go to the polls once every four years or once every two years federal provincial. And then, and then, you know, the third time that we go is for the local government. So we go fairly regularly to the polls and we get an opportunity to cast our ballot about who we want to vote for. Um, and in that vote is, you know, a whole pile of different factors, right? And in the, in the Canadian system, in the, in the provincial system, it, uh, you know, it's about who you're voting for. It's about who you're voting against. It's about your values, your principles. It's about your hopes and your dreams for the future, all in one mark beside one person's name. Uh, and never do we pause and say, "Is this system serving us anymore? Mm-hmm. Never do we send out a citizens' assembly, for an example, to tour the province of British Columbia, to tour the country of Canada and say, how well served do you feel as a citizen? This is your government. Mm-hmm. This is your country or province or town. Uh, this is uh, a body that is making decisions on behalf of you,
1: funded by you,
0: funded by you. Your hard, your your hard work, mm-hmm. you know, Dan. Your 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 sweat and tears
1: mm-hmm.
0: are, are being are being uh, determined by this body. Does it serve you? Yeah. We don't ever ask that question. We just assume that these ancient systems that we've, that were you know we've inherited or that have evolved over the past decades. You know, we're not mm-hmm. even talking centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Canada, it's a hundred it's sixteen decades. Yeah. you know, in BC, in Canada, it's it's longer than that, but not much. Mm-hmm. And, and we think, oh, okay, well, that system, we'll just keep it that way. You know, and it has, you know, and it was based on. I I said in my in my speech to the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act, I said it it was set up to serve the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm -hmm. It was set up to serve a multinational corporation. Why do we think that by maintaining that system that we're going to get anything other than a system that serves multinational corporate interests? Mm -hmm. That's what we get. And that's what the system was set up to do. We act like a resource colony. The people in rural and remote communities... Are looking for some leadership uh, uh, in in their areas. They're seeing those same corporate entities that have now been, you know, consolidated into four or five logging companies and forestry companies in this province, taking profits out of their communities and and to shareholders in in New York. And they're standing up and saying, "We, we you know, we want local benefits for those forests. Why aren't we not seeing that? Mm-hmm. It's because we don't ask the question: Is this government serving you anymore? Yeah. Or ever, was it ever serving yeah, you?
1: Yeah. Who's the system designed for?
0: It was designed to be a resource colony of uh, of the Empire, mm-hmm. of, of of the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and so, um, you know, aside from the fact that we've got a safe communities in our province, for the most part, it's a safe place to live. For the most part, uh, we've got uh, you know of the highest standard of living in in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know if we're speaking in generalities. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we started a pretty good place, but we never paused to ask people like you, yeah. people like you, the people who listen to your music and everybody else, yeah. is this working for you?
1: Well, and and I think that's at the core of of the challenge right now for folks who live in this part of the world who are looking both locally and globally at and going wow, we got to do something different here because this is going to catch up to us real quick. And we're talking now in the next 15 years. But it's so hard to make change in a part of the world that's so good. We just have it so good. And the vast majority of people in positions of power and even even the voting base just, they got it pretty good relatively. And so there isn't the same push that we're seeing in Lebanon and in Chile right now where people are showing up. A big part of that is because it ain't so good there. And so you have a lot more reason to be asking the questions that you're asking, which is, does this system serve us and who is it designed for? Um, and I'm always, you know, I see a bit of my job as as to kind of try and shake things up a little bit and go. And that's why I'll write stuff that, that maybe I don't feel perfectly great about because I'm a really loving, kind, peaceful dude. But sometimes you got to say, Things that that challenge people a little bit, or that shake them a little bit, and maybe maybe that will push them into a place to ask those questions we're talking about. Um, because I think until we can, until we are maybe uncomfortable enough that uncomfortable enough with how things are and where we are at in our lives, it's going to be really hard to then see massive social change um, and ask those questions that we're talking about. And it's inc- incumbent upon us, uh, a society that is
0: pretty well looked after in general Mm. uh to be pushing the edges to be going out further and saying okay you know the status quo that we have is not good enough we have the privilege to be able to explore uh deeper than maybe other uh, parts of this globe can we should be doing that instead what i hear is uh, excuse-making, uh, you know, from our jurisdiction. Well, we're just a small place, yeah. you know. We, we're if just,
1: China doesn't change, what's the point in us? Yeah, but really, we're,
0: you know, we're throw, you know, let's all collectively throw our hands in the air and admit that we are, you know, um, impotent, mm-hmm. that we cannot, we, we do not have the ability mm-hmm. to make the change that's needed to be made. So, uh, you know, let's help other people make the change uh, rather than let's do it ourselves, and I think uh, we have a, a responsibility mm-hmm. to lead that, not to follow that, yeah. not not to uh, to set standards that's lower than everybody else, but to set standards that are much higher than everybody else uh, to lead. And you know, I, I take uh, I, I take the example of Greta Greta Thunberg as an example. Um, she was she is one human being. Uh, and and uh, she decided to leave school one day and go and sit in front of the Swedish parliament. One human made the decision she was going to do something on her own. And it was that example of the, the pictures that we had of her face and of her body sitting in front of that parliament uh, that inspired others to make that change to the point where now she goes somewhere and several thousand people go to that same place mm-hmm. on their own. Yeah. They like get up and go to that place. Okay. And it's the example, I think, that we as a, as a small jurisdiction, a smaller jurisdiction in British Columbia or a country with, you know, a, a small population in Canada yeah. need to see the example that she set. One person or one small jurisdiction, if that's what we want to see ourselves, standing up And saying, we need to do things differently. There's an example of how we can do things differently. We're going to do things differently. And others following that example. And so, you know, if if it was in fact true that a small jurisdiction can have no impact on the course of the future, then the example of Greta, we we wouldn't have that example in front
1: of us. Precisely, yeah. And when, you know, I was... I won't drop names, but I was in, in, in a CRD meeting the other day and I got that exact sentiment. Well, we're not going to do this, this, and this. We're not going to go zero carbon and we're not going to epically lobby the provincial government to reduce emissions on all of our behalfs. because like, if China and India don't do it, like, what's the point of us doing it? And it was like, I felt so sorry for them. Hearing those words come out of a politician's mouth, an elected official's mouth that has lost so much hope and has lost the awareness that we are all connected in ways that we have no grasp of. That the degree to which our energy exchanges happen with the growth of the internet and communication tools. It's like what a tiny town does ripples in ways today that it never did even 20 years ago. And I think to utter that phrase is, is, comes you know, from fear. comes from a lack of empowerment and a lack of hope. And I walked out of the meeting. I said, if, if that's the attitude that you're going to carry as an elected official, I think we might just have to shift over to occupying your office then. Because if if you're not going to at least step up with folks and say, yeah, let's set crazy high targets and shoot for them, even though it doesn't actually matter on the grand scheme of emissions, but it matters on the inspiration. Greta's example, it matters on the energy exchange in the world. Um, and it just generally matters on principle. And I think we can't lose sight of that in Canada. We can't lose sight of it in BC and we can't lose sight of it as locally as you want. It all matters.
0: I come from a sports background and sports communications before I got into politics. And, you know, I've been around sports teams that don't believe that they've got a chance to, to you know, they they don't set the goal to win the the, the championship at the end of the season, hmm. right? And they go through this whole process of playing regular season games, getting to the end of the season, getting into the playoffs. If they haven't set the goal of, of of winning the championship at the end, if they haven't set that big vision target for themselves, they don't achieve it. They achieve exactly the goals that they have set for themselves. And if they're doubting themselves going into the beginning of it, if you're a an individual athlete and you don't think that you uh, can, if if you don't think that you can win the U.S. Open tennis championship, like uh, you won't. But if you set the goal for yourself that that's what you want to do and then that's what you're striving to achieve, you're more likely to achieve it than if you say, ah, I'll probably get knocked out in the third round, right? Yeah. Well, you're going to get knocked out in the third round then. And, no and, and you kind of set, you, you, you set the future, the, the, by through your intention, mm-hmm. you set the future for yourself. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that this is where we have to be and where, you know, I've consistently said in that place, we have got to be courageous and we've got to be bold. And that means our targets have to be courageous and bold, and and people are going to look at us and go, "You're never going to be able to achieve those." That's when you know that you've set courageous and bold targets, yeah. and you're never going to get anywhere near them yeah. if you haven't set them. And so I think you know where we where we where we do otherwise than that, we're just excuse making. We're just creating a a pathway for us to not achieve much at all. Frankly, yeah. Yeah. it's a it's. It is a situation in which I think we need to have more confidence in ourselves, yeah. um, whether it be at the local or regional governance level or at the provincial level or at the, at the federal level. And the way our, one of the biggest frustrations I have in my job is that the way that power and jurisdictions are, are uh, um, divvied up in this country, the, yeah. the way that, the the that it's set up, yeah. is it basically handcuffs everybody. You know, the number of times that I've run into the answer, ah, oh, well, we can't do that. That's a federal government. Or, ah, oh, we can't do that. That's a local government. Or I hear a local government person go, oh, we can't do that. It's a provincial government. And it's not that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It's that we've created a, sin- a a governing situation in which the people who we elect to represent us and to do things on our behalf, collectively on our behalf, yeah. have handcuffed themselves say oh we can't you know the one of the issues here on the on salt spring island is the tree and all the gulf islands is tree cutting yeah great clear cutting yeah there is there is nothing that makes me more frustrated than to have to say i don't have the ability to change that or to hear my colleagues at the local government saying we don't have the tools that haven't been given to us to change that
1: Hmm.
0: and um we're, we're looking at ways to make that more clear on who can make that change but it's like months later (laughs) i'm just if i had hair i would be pulling it out (laughs) i would have pulled it out a long time ago based because it's like we've created these systems to govern us and then we've taken away the tools to actually give them the power to be able to govern Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. crazy making no
1: doubt I want to ground this in, in something that happened earlier this week because I have a few cool. questions for you that have yeah, been, You know that that have been bouncing around in my brain and uh, and such mixed reviews. And so um, why don't you start just by giving our listeners a, a quick synopsis of, of what happened with Undrip and what Undrip is, and then and then what we did in BC with it, and then I'll shoot you some questions.
0: Okay, rocking. So uh, back in uh, maybe about 20 years ago, the United Nations began a process uh, with with their membership to take a look at creating a declaration on the rights of Indigenous people. Indigenous people around the world have been trampled on um, and uh, their rights have been taken away and the title to their lands has been removed, uh, very similarly to what happened here in Canada and, and more specifically what happened here in British Columbia where um, uh, a, a colonial power comes in and claims the land is empty. It's ours. They plant a flag, and then they start operating like it's in 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 our case, it's the crown. Um, and so uh, the United Nations, along with their member states, decided dis- that they were going to create a declaration to to clarify what the rights of indigenous people are. Uh, they are, as it come, what it comes down to, is human rights. Uh, but because there has been uh, these the settlement and countries and jurisdictions have been created, they have to clearly identify, and in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People does so in 45 or 46 different articles, uh, different aspects of Indigenous life and how, you know, states are to interact with that. That uh, was in the mid-2000s was when that uh, deliberative democratic process at the UN ended, and states began to, um, they haven't ad- They haven't adopted the United Nations Declaration, but they have essentially accepted it. Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand were four states that did not accept, initially, uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, there were some questions about who holds jurisdiction, who holds authority to be able to make these decisions, and who gets to collect taxes on land. And, you know, there's... There's uh, so those those four countries were holdouts. Uh, that's changed now. Uh, I believe that all states in the United Nations have have accepted it. Canada accepted it, and in 2016, Canada uh, fully accepted. Uh, initially, Canada accepted it in part, and then uh, the uh, Liberal Party of Canada eventually accepted the entire document. Um, In 2017, uh, provincially, both the BC NDP and the BC Green parties uh, stated in their platforms that adopting, so bringing into legislation, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People was part of the platform. It was going to happen. And when we were negotiating with both, uh, when we, the BC Green Caucus, was negotiating with both the BC Liberals and the BC NDP. This was one of the foundational pieces of what ended up being in the Confidence and Supply Agreement that is the relationship, the founding document of the relationship between the BC NDP and the BC Greens. It's one of the things that we promised that we were going to do. And over the last two years, uh, Minister Scott Fraser, the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation, has put in place a team that has been working towards this end, and uh, last Thursday, October uh, October the 24th, 2019, um, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act was brought in for first reading. Uh, indigenous leaders for the Leadership Council, First Nations Leadership Council, were on the floor of the legislature. We spoke ministerial statement from uh, the uh, Premier John Horgan and uh, official opposition, and I had the honor to be able to speak on behalf of the third party, the B.C. Greens, and so now we have in front of us uh, DRIPA, or the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act, Bill Forty One. Uh, yesterday, so that's October thirty first, twenty nineteen. It passed second reading, and so it n- is now moving through the process. And uh, we've got a couple of weeks away from the legislature, and then when we return, it will go to committee of the whole, and eventually it will become an act, uh, and it creates a pathway a framework forward for changing the relationship between uh indigenous people and the crown in british columbia it it really kind of is it it is a new map now for us to to begin to chart a, a course on
1: hmm. very cool and that's yeah great synopsis i know talking to some friends it's been you know it's always there's a lots of acronyms going around right now and so thanks for sharing that and yeah and so when i when i watch that happening and and it's a ongoing theme. And I think in a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's hearts these days is I, is, is I'm, as I'm split it's, and it's maybe it's the dichotomy that's been beaten into me over 26 years, but I, I look at it and part of that is hopeful. Part of that. I really do see leadership, uh, relative to the whole world. I see leadership in, in the province, in this province and how we are attempting to better our interactions with indigenous communities. um, However, there are very few actions that I can point to in the last four years or eight years that confirm any real respect for Indigenous communities and Indigenous way of life, and especially the hereditary systems that existed before the colonial governments arrived, Mm. before the Canadian government came in and implemented the the band council system and the reservation systems, uh, the hereditary system existed, and... And I wonder. I guess one question for you is: is how is there a plan for how how the government will relate and and negotiate and deal with hereditary systems versus band council systems? Um, Let's start with that. Ah, it's a great. It's love the question. Yeah. Um. Because in that's a cool bird. Yeah, for, for those of you who don't know, we're sitting in my 220-square-foot uh, 200, cabin right now, and there's a towhee on the deck and uh, mm-hmm. some chickadees kicking around. Beautiful and, little bird. Sorry, I didn't mean I to know, distract. Cool. But it was <laughs> cool. No, uh, so it's a great
0: question, because, uh, because one of the mechanisms in, in the Bill 41 is it allows for the provincial government to engage uh, with bodies other than um, Indian Act bands. So, one of the limitations, and, and I and I completely respect your frustration. I grew up on Sartlip First Nation. I'm a member of Sartlip. My sister's on council. I'm a mixed heritage guy. What you have articulated as, we, you know, we've, we've said we're going to do different, but what we've seen is, I mean, that's my life. Mm-hmm. That's part of what drove me to get in politically involved in the first place. And so, um, you know, I think when when you actually look at it, there has been a very limited ability for the provincial government to be able to make agreements with anybody other than those Indian Act bans. Mm-hmm. There's no other legal entity that until you legislate, you can talk to other legal entities. They don't exist. So this has created... I mean, the provincial government's been creative. They've been dealing with, in some cases, sometimes a, uh, a like a hereditary... Uh, sis, uh, the hereditary chiefs up north will create a nonprofit society, for an example, and you have to then aggr- make an agreement with a nonprofit society. You're not actually recognizing the chiefs have any authority at all. You're only saying that this body, the nonprofit society, is what we're making an agreement with. Uh, in other cases, it's a corporation, so they'll create an economic development corporation, and then the provincial government makes an agreement with that dev Corp, and you're not saying actually that, that you're making any agreements necessarily with the indigenous people. You have a legal relationship with the corporation uh, and or Indian bands, Indian Act bands. What the What the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is very clear about is that indigenous people have the right to self determination. They have the right to self governance, and they can they can decide what that looks like. It's up It's up to indigenous communities to determine who that body is, what that body is, how it's constituted, that represents them. It's up to them to determine who their membership is, right? Like, there's just an example up in uh, Weglisla, in in Heitzhuk territory, where they had an adopted uh, child into one of the families, and he had no indigenous heritage uh, background, except he's part of their community they adopted this family adopted him into their family he went to go to the uh, junior all native basketball tournament and they wouldn't let him because he wasn't carrying a status card and the and you know if i remember the story correctly they hate super you. you're like hold on this is our kid mm-hmm. we have welcomed this child into our community we've made him one of us so this declaration allows for communities to be able to do that, determine who their members are, who carries their membership forward, and then says, says to the government, this is who we are. This is how we define ourselves, and this is how you're going to interact with us. And so we have a situation that occurred uh, earlier this year, uh, in, in the very beginning of 2019, on the Coastal GasLink Pipeline, as an example, where uh, you have a, a pipeline company and a, and a, and a province that goes along and signs agreements with the only body that they're legally entitled to have to sign agreements with. Everybody in the world knows that there's a different governance structure up there for Indigenous people. And so they're going along and signing it with the reserves. The question in the communities is, who represents the broader territory of the uh, Quetzalcoatl people? That's up to the wet sweat and to figure out what you know mm-hmm. what it is. And I, I said during that time, I said, look, if they have a, a hereditary chief system and no one has dismantled that, if the communities have not dismantled their hereditary chiefs, then we have to admit that that governance structure still exists to this day, right? Except for the fact that currently, uh, currently still, but at that time as well there was only one body that the provincial government could make agreements with and to consult with and negotiate with legally. So they went in and they, and, and the work was done with the, with the Indian Act bands. The DRIPA, when it comes in, is going to force the provincial government to say it's more complex than that. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it is going to require people to, at the very beginning of the process, identify who it is that they need to do the work with and go out and do the work with them. And rather than say that some colonial government establishes who they have to do the work with, they say to the First Nations, the indigenous people on the ground, who is it? You tell us, you sort it out, you figure it out, we'll come, and we'll create a process with that body.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. And see, I can appreciate that perspective. Now, one thing that sort of starts tickling in my chest when I hear that is, that sounds really, um, it sounds like the provincial government in this case, in, in their interaction with Coastal Gas Link and, um, and LNG Canada, was, was, was doing the best that they could. They, they did their best, they, they used the tools that they had available, and they consulted with, within the law what they were able to do, which is really convenient when it is also in line with their goal of fracking the hell out of the land and moving that as fast as they can again, as a resource colony with laws and systems designed to support coastal gas link far more than any of the people or communities that live here. And so it's just it's just convenient and, and that they were able to follow that path. However, look nope. no, I, I just want to say this. I don't, I don't know that they were. Totally. Okay.
0: I don't know that they were doing the best that they could.
1: I don't think they were. And, and I don't think that you can say that, not you, I don't think that, that they can claim in general that Doug Donaldson the the MLA for that region wasn't standing there and knew all well that they were that they were in the wrong that there is not a very strong structural hereditary system within the Wet'suwet'en nation that needed to be discussed and listened to and respected and the fact that they claimed that that wasn't the case simply because their laws weren't in line with that is no justification for allowing and standing by as literally armed militia walked up to that camp with guns Hauled people away, broke down systems, identical to what happened 200 years ago, and has been happening every year since then. Yeah, yeah, and so and so does so does this does this legislation, does UNDRIP, UNDRIPA, as you've called it, what what will that will we see? Do you think will we see RCMP raids like the one we saw at the Unistoten camp again once that becomes law? So. Um...
0: I don't know, man. Like, I, I what I what I do know is are you that, hopeful that we? won't? Well, I'm absolutely hopeful. I'm absolutely hopeful that this. Like, when I say it gives us a new map and a new terrain to chart a course on, I'm I'm very hopeful um, with the with uh, the recognition uh, rather than so so we we change the narrative from uh, one of denial to one of recognition by doing this. Mm-hmm. So we recognize that they have that indigenous people have their own governance structures. We recognize that they have the right to determine their own, uh, self, self-determine, uh, their future. Uh, it requires us to get free prior and informed consent from those structures. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's be clear. Does it change it tomorrow? No, but does it set us on the same, on a path to, uh, and create a framework for us, uh, to, a better future yes it does absolutely a hundred percent because with free prior and informed consent what we have is we have a situation where it's less let's do this and then fight it out in court and more a situation where let's propose this and have a conversation about how it goes and a lot of people have said okay you know this is basically handing a veto over to first nations they can now stop anything they want I think the actual, actually the opposite is true. What we have right now is a situation where veto, Indigenous people have veto. What they, they ended up, they end up taking a, a, a project to court and it gets turned over. That's after the fact. Yeah. What this does is it requires a, a before the fact situation where you have a conversation that begins, that starts at the very beginning Rather than uh, a, a conversation that happens after the decision has been made, yeah. and so with changes to the Environmental Assessment Act, with uh, with uh, some with with the changes that come with DRIPA, you start to say, "Look, there are legit the, the Canadian courts, the Supreme Court of Canada has already been clear on on all of this. You, uh, Province of British Columbia, you government of Canada Do need." to change the way you're interacting because the more these cases come in front of us, the more you lose, the more you get your butts kicked on this the, the the more disruption, the less certainty there is on the landscape, the less certainty there is for Indigenous people, the less certainty there is, if, if the economy is the only thing you're worried about, guess what? The less certainty there is for the economy. If you're worried about social justice, there's less certainty there. And if you're worried about environmental issues, well, that's getting devastated and there's less certainty there. So on all accounts, there's less certainty with the current situation than with a situation that says, hey... Let's get free prior and informed consent, meaning it's got to be free, Mean, it's got to be at the beginning, and guess what? It has to be informed. Mm-hmm. And if any of those three conditions don't exist, uh, then then the, the program from the very beginning is in trouble. The final thing that I want to say to that is, and I said this very clearly in my second reading speech, I'll be damned if the only people in this province and in this society and in this globe— that you don't have to achieve free, prior, and informed consent with is Indigenous people, because in every other aspect of our society, I want to be very clear about this. There's not another relationship that I engage in. Like I'm not, I'm not r- recording this to be put on my podcast, and you are in duress, and I'm forcing you to do this. Mm-hmm. This was free, prior, and informed consent, and not only that, we should check in now, yeah. and we should check in often. Are we still good here? I'm having a good time. Can we still do this? <laughs> yeah. Right? And that yeah. is the relationships that that in 2019 we're recognizing you you can you cannot proceed without consensual relationships. Mm-hmm. It is an incredibly dangerous world if that's how we're operating, if that's how you choose to operate. Mm-hmm. You end up you end up being opening yourself up to huge hazards everywhere. Yeah. So th- when I hear someone stand up in the legislature, I hear someone stand up in in public, or I hear <laughs> or, I, or I hear it on or read it in a newspaper article that you know, free prior and informed consent is somewhat problematic. Mm-hmm. And I say, only with indigenous people, straight up. We have to absolutely question those people and say, are you seriously saying? Yeah. are you seriously saying, that there is a segment of our population in which we don't have to achieve free prior and informed consent with. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. When you get it every day on everything that you do. That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: So wow. I think I answered
1: a whole pile of no, questions that's there. That's Great. So I, <laughs> but, and so <clears throat> I I I can imagine some of the folks listening. Uh, and and the biggest question on my mind too is is. Preface it by saying I'm a very hopeful person. I actually think in the next 10 years we're gonna see something that's gonna blow everyone away. Yeah, I agree. I think I think there's a there's a bubbling going on globally, and in this part of the world it's just gonna, it's it's gonna be spectacular. And I think I'm I'm having trouble maintaining hope uh when I look at what's being allowed to go on right now in this part of the world and what's been approved in the last number of years. And mm. I'm really curious uh what undrippa uh, and this legislation means in regards to the Site Dam, which has really strong, really legitimate, both violations of treaty rights, as well as the violation of hereditary systems and a lack of consent for critical nations in that region. The Kinder Morgan Pipeline, not Kinder Morgan anymore, Trans Mountain Canada Pipeline. Um, you know, a few of those projects, you know, where where does this legislation Work sort of in hindsight, and and can it be applied really intelligently? Say by the lawyers working with the nations challenging the trans mountain expansion.
0: Well, Chilcotin, the Chilcotin decision, and and I've asked a, a very very um, knowledgeable lawyer to actually walk me through the Chilcotin decision again for, for the second time. You know, these are really complex decisions, and determining what they what they actually mean on the landscape and what they actually mean in the relationship with Indigenous people, but it's both forward-looking and backward-looking. So it it does send, to my understanding of it, it sends a message to governments that, look, any decision that you make in the future, you know, you have to be able to, it has to be done through the lens of this decision, the the Chilcotin decision. But also remember, any decision that you made in the past also must be taken, looked through this. So anything that, Decision that was made in the past can also be challenged. You know, that's and 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 so um, there's been an awful lot of court challenges that have that have happened around mainly around consultation and engagement and a lot of the the lack of clarity around you know the 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 duty to consult and engage. I mean, there's there, there's not a lot of clarity mm-hmm. there. Uh, there is a lot more clarity when it comes to free prior and informed consent, you know, and and, and you know. This doesn't negate the ability of an Indigenous community to say no to something if it's in, impacting them in a way that uh, is not in their interest. Very similarly, then, when you're working with your local government, a neighbourhood can come and say, no, mm-hmm. we don't want the 38-storey condo to be you know, blocking out our sunshine. Yeah. We don't want that. You know, it, it, They have a right, the community has a right, to be able to come forward and say no to that project. Yeah. You know, and it's and again, there's these double standards that are set in our society. If an indigenous community is coming and saying no, they're putting an end to our economy. Yeah. If a neighborhood in the in the uh, you know upper west side of Vancouver comes and says no, we don't want that, they're exerting their right to be able to say no to something. No doubt. So, hey, and I
1: need to insert something here for for, yeah. for the listeners, and it's critical because just because that narrative is so dominant, you read the frickin' Globe and Mail these days, and it's all just people talking about some indigenous veto as a threat to our economy and and i need to point out that before the government of british columbia decided to go forward with the sightsee dam and just spend millions and millions of taxpayer dollars on this project what are we at now let's climb to 13b i think yeah I don't know. It's yeah, climbing yeah it's really climbing. quiet going on up there yeah I mean, really it's... quiet so i just need to preface this. before before the government decided that they were going to drop all that taxpayer money that money was set to be distributed amongst many communities including tons of indigenous communities that were looking to invest in decentralized forms of energies to support support the electricity grid in british columbia we had decentralized solar projects we had research going into tidal energy we had geothermal energy all being driven at the community level looking for government subsidization to get these projects going it would it would make our grid stronger more resilient uh you know less likely to fail in certain all sorts of different cases uh and that all got washed away and all that Money got focused in a single project that's an extremely high-risk scenario, and I felt that that was really important to include because this isn't a one-sided narrative. It's not like indigenous communities are just saying no to everything, and it's not like the environmental communities out there saying no to everything. The yes list is massive. The number of things that I could tell you right now that me and, and thousands of other people on the coast are full screaming yes for is so much greater than about the five things on my list that i'm like hey we should stop spraying the crops we should probably not build that giant dam that's going to do nothing for anyone we should probably not be expanding pipelines in the province that's kind of my no list uh and uh, yeah i just that narrative really pisses me off
0: <laughs> yeah well um i think the listeners are here it's, it's, it's rising yeah <laughs> it's a crescendo here no i think uh, uh well i mean you're right uh we've probably we probably just segued now to uh to to BC hydro mm-hmm. which is a beast that that uh, we, we, you know i think needs to be talked about more in this province um you know i've got i've got constituents on the southern gulf islands here that want to build solar farms and they're being told that they can't you know we're going backwards mm-hmm. on, on this and, and i think that you know we we have inherited a uh, a utility that's used to building big projects and managing big projects, we've inherited a philosophy that you build, you know, big dam power up there with big uh, transmission lines down to here, and you know, you you uh, have a very very old school philosophy that that um, uh, that is still driving decision making within that organization. I I I, I feel, and I, I'm not. This is a feeling, so I want to be clear about that. But I feel like. BC Hydro's got this notion that if it's not building a dam, it's not being useful. Yeah. Um. They, you know, I would love it for them to start and, and for government to start seeing BC Hydro as a broker rather than a producer. Yeah. Uh. You know, and it's fine if it continues to produce, but, um, you know, I think, I think th- th- there's an interesting parallel that just emerged here in this conversation because. Uh, we now started to talk about decentralization, yeah. uh, and I think that not only decentralization at the BC, at BC Hydro is something we should be talking about, but I think decentralization of power in general, yeah. uh, like political power, we need to decentralize that. Yeah. We need to decentralize decision-making so that it's not all being made in one office in a building in Victoria, but it's being made in multiple offices. We need to decentralize... Um, you know the 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 pots of money that people can go and and or that governments can go and fund projects with yeah. so that you know more local uh, initiatives can be decided upon locally yeah. and that you've got maybe a provincial government that's creating a, a situation you know and, and maybe I'm answering the question from the from the very beginning which was if we had a uh, if we had a citizens assembly going around the province yeah. You know, maybe I'm actually already feeding what I think that should be, which is, you know, a provincial government that looks out for the the broader jurisdiction, but is more enabling of local governments. Uh, that um, that Salt Spring Island, for an example, if if it's, if the citizens here don't believe that it's in their interest to cut down all the forests, yeah. that they should be able to have the power to make the decision about that yeah. and say, you know what, nah, we're good, we're good on the clear cuts right now.
1: Yeah,
0: I think that when it comes to your ability to produce power on this land, if you've, you know, for you to be able to feed that back in and BC Hydro be like, yeah, thanks brother. That's really great. You're contributing to the betterment of the future of everybody. And we'll pay you for that. Uh, If your neighbor doesn't have uh, an open space to put solar panels because they've decided to keep the trees, Mm -hmm. they should be able to buy you know, or benefit from you building the solar farm and maybe be that investor in it and be able to benefit from that. So I think when you look at what is going on with BC Hydro, it is, it is um, an example of the kind of decision-making that we have as a very clear decision-making in our past that we've got to move away from. Yeah. And so if we're building a giant dam far away from where most of the people in the province live. And we're transmitting that. Everybody that I've talked to, when I've, when I've said this to them, I said, like, you know how much power is lost between the Sightsea dam and where the majority of people are using it? it, it like, it's such a wasteful kind of mentality and approach to things. Yeah. And so, um, but how many roofs are in downtown Vancouver yeah. that are sitting completely unutilized you know how many condo stratas uh, if they were enabled to could put or at least lease the space that they own collectively on the roof of their building and say yeah generate power
1: yeah Yeah, we'll use it any excess we'll sell it to the grid that just makes sense so and and you've hit it on the nose with the decentralizing and i think i think one of my challenges with trying to figure out how to get this moving and how to be a part of that solution because it's how many more reports do we need that that say uh solar panels covering the state of idaho would power the world over in one day the amount of solar energy that hits a, a given state in america covered in solar panels would meet the global energy needs uh that comes i feel like i read one of those every three days and it's just like or like hey how many you know oh we really only need like uh, you know, a few hundred miles of wind farms to power, to again meet all of the world's energy needs. Um, and so, my real question, the, the the things that bump around in my brain is, what are the pinch points? You know, where is the bottleneck on this? That that's stopping us. It's obviously it's obviously you know corporate money and politics and the way that our elections work. And um, and then and then you know and I and I'd like to you to hit on that. And the other the only other thing I'd like to insert is. That when we talk about decentralization of power, I think folks need to realize that that we have to take it, that we are not going to be given power from a centralized system. That's not how power distribution works. Power distribution works by people getting it together and taking it back and demanding. And that's, that's the inspiration and empowerment of indigenous communities that I'm seeing in this province is they are not asking permission. They are taking back power themselves and they are paying the price for it and really horrible ways that most settler folks in this province do not have to deal with nonetheless they're not asking for permission and i and i think if we're going to see the surge that i'm hoping we see over the next 20 years a big part of it is going to be the theme of decentralization which is what you're talking about and that will be driven by empowered people and communities taking it and not asking for the permission of the provincial government to give them power to legislate their own clear-cut logging they're going to legislate their own clear-cut logging and deal with the aftermath
0: yeah, you know, I think I think uh, there are um, there are certainly benefits to having the public and the governments working together, because part of why we are uh, a jur- again going back to the beginning of this, part of why we are a jurisdiction that's worth living in, mm-hmm. and one that is makes it so desirable, so that we can sit and have these conversations, is because the government has created. Uh, through legislation a relatively safe and and a, a society and that has generated generally generated wealth now a lot of that's been shipped out now i'm not yeah, yeah. so i think there is a benefit to us working together i wouldn't be in governance if i didn't believe that there that there's a benefit to a well governed area you know i think i remember when i was on local government council and asking and, and, and people would ask me questions, oh, what's your job? And I'd say, my job is basically to manage fence lines so that multiple people can live in a relatively small area and each of them not kind of stand on each other's toes too much. I, I don't ever want to live in a society where we're not at least kind of testing what it feels like to step on each other's toes a little bit because mm-hmm. that's what keeps us creative and vibrant. Yeah. But standing on each other's toes is, is something that I think we want to shy away from as much as possible so you know our job is to manage fence lines and I, and I actually think that there are situations where having a having a body that makes general rules that allow for communities to interact with each other for roads connecting those communities to continue to exist and be maintained and all that general infrastructure above to keep the thing together yeah. is necessary however What's happened is, uh, just like we saw in the forestry industry, just like we've seen in a bunch of other areas, just consolidations, and it's power consolidations, and the provincial government has, uh, to a great extent, like the federal government, the PMOs, the prime minister's office and the premier's offices, have been consolidating power and authority into a smaller and smaller and smaller room, until eventually... It comes down to one person or you know maybe a handful of maybe a handful of people making a lot of the decisions. Yeah. And they've the, the system of governance has been used for that power consolidation so that people that we elect are not necessarily going there and, and being fully utilized. I am a fully utilized MLA. <laughs> I One of three in the Green Caucus, you know, I stand up and speak daily if I wanted to. Yeah. I could speak to every bill. I could, you know, like there's almost no limit to what I can do as an MLA being one of three. But when you get into these big caucuses where there's 40 or 35, um, you start to find that there's groups of people in that that speak far less than other groups of people. And, you know, that is the the consolidation of power within the party structure. It's the consolidation of power in the opposition. Now, there's people, I look across the way, there's people that I can't remember the last time they stood and spoke uh, in the legislature. They just kind of sit there. And, you know, I, I'm assuming that they do a great job for their constituents. I, I know for a fact that some of them do less of a good job because I get their constituents emailing me to help solve their problem in it from a community that's so far away from Saanich North and the islands that right and I have to say to them you have to like you have to get your MLA to this is their job to do this right so I think um, I I think like to to some extent there's no doubt about it Uh, incumbent corporations have been using political donations to politicize decisions so we get decisions that are being made not that are in the best interest of the jurisdiction yeah. but that are in the best interest of the politicians and their political parties in the pursuit of gaining and maintaining power
1: yeah site c was bought <clears throat> it was it was purchased you know the, the the union's purchased the BC NDP to approve the site c dam every every report pointed that there was better options for that what they what they came out with shortly after the report that came out remind me of what they called it the 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 set the assessment that the the, the BC Utilities the, Commission yeah the, yeah BCUC did a report and it I mean you look at you look at how the NDP interpreted that and it was like no you, that's that you can't you can't possibly have read that report and then decided that the right move was to go forward with that down. I read it and went great all they're saying is you could produce way more energy for way cheaper decentralizing it putting it into all the places that they were originally planning on so. I just wanted to, you know, there's a few really prime well, the, examples here that it's just like, yeah, this is corporate money that swayed a decision again and again and again.
0: The argument about sunk costs was not consistent with the argument around bridge tolls. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, um, and that same money could have been used to do something else, but they decided to to, uh, to remove bridge tolls because that was a political decision. Yeah. Because swing ridings in a, in a governing situation where you've got... Um, 50 plus one votes gets someone elected, all you have to do is get the bare majority and you can get your person elected. And if you get 50 plus one seats in the legislature and you can make sure everyone's there, then you can maintain a majority government. And a majority government only ever has to ask the public once every four years what they think about a situation. And if you have a situation where there's only two parties, then you can create a boogeyman scenario where, well, we're better than them. And that's when good enough becomes... The, uh, the uh, good enough becomes the baseline and good enough is not good enough. And that's what a lot of people have been saying. Good enough is not good enough. It's not good enough that you're barely better than those other guys. We have to be in a situation now where you have to be remarkably better Mm -hmm. than those other guys because, um, those other guys and gals, those (laughs) other people, (laughs) those others over there. Um, we need you to be great. Ooh, that's, yeah. <laughs> we need you to be amazing and remarkable, not yeah. just good enough. And right now our governance is operating at a situation where it's good enough. And so, you know, I get a, I, I get to sit through question period every day. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and what I hear is, well, we um, inherited a situation that was bad Okay, great. You inherited a situation that was bad. What's your plan for making that bad situation better? That's not cl- that's not necessarily clear. What is clear is that you inherited a situation that's bad because that's what gets reported yeah. or that's what gets repeated. And so I have a strike in my school district right now, and the response of the minister was the, the initial response of the minister was, "Well, we inherited a bad situation." I say, "Yeah, you did." And you are where you are because the situation is bad. Yeah. And when when the BC Greens and the BC NDP got together, and we had a conversation about the bad situation that the province was in, and we talked about the fact that you know sixty uh, percent of the people in the province voted for somebody other than the bad situation, and I was going to doors in that in that election. And door after door after door of people that voted for liberals and the, the bad situation in the past yeah. were going to vote for something else. Uh, and I was and I was left with a decision to make about who I was going to partner with, the bad situation or a new situation. Um, I chose the new situation because that's what the people in my writing wanted was a change in government. Now, that change in government only works if the new government embraces the opportunity that they have and makes bold and courageous decisions. And to some extent, we can in we can, force a different outcome than maybe the BC NDP or the, the current government wants. In some instances, we don't have the, the ability to do that. We only have the ability to modify. Yeah. And in some situations, like the Site C decision, there was no vote on that. And so we would have had to have really stretched to go way outside and vote against a bunch of other things that might have been good in order to be punitive about a decision that we didn't like so we now have this situation where we have to you know the values of do we continue to do we continue to um, allow good enough to proceed when we know that it falls well short of amazing yeah. or what we need? So the, you know these are the these are the the uh, the give and takes of the job. But I think in the end, uh, one of the one of the things that I've realized in the role is that we don't have, I don't think that we have the benefit of of frittering around the edges uh, for too much longer. We need courageous leadership. We need bold leadership. We need people that are going to be willing to uh, act on the information that they've been given and and recognizing that it's not always about whether or not uh, we're going to be able to win a seat here or win a seat there. It's not always about what's in the best interest of our political party. Yeah. We have to be firmly focused on what's in the best interest of the people that we represent and the broader jurisdiction that we represent. And I've always operated on the fact that when we look after those uh, people with that in mind, they look after us.
1: Yeah, you win. But, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to ask you about. Let's talk about our futures, and then and then Kay. we'll wrap this up. This has been yeah, a, yeah. a brilliant conversation. I want to know, um, just to you know, what a if you're running, if you plan on running in the next election, and and just what your vision is for for moving this thing forward. Because I think, uh, you know, though though the Greens had a, a pretty rough go in the federal election here, or at least uh, you know they doubled their popular vote. Um, but ended up with only a, a one more seat, and that's uh, just a reflection of the, the, the electoral system we have. Um, but I have no doubt that there's a there's change in the air, and I think people are looking. Uh, you know, diehard people who have been who have been one color their whole lives are now looking around a little bit more than, than they were a couple years ago. Um, and so I wonder what you know what kind of vision you have um, for this upcoming provincial election, uh, and and sort of you know. Where you maybe see this going, or, or any you know any criticism you have of your own party or where places you'd like to improve, or. Uh,
0: yes, yeah, so I'm definitely gonna be running again. Um, I'm, I am feel like I'm just starting to get my feet under me. I mean it's been a it's been a crash course in, in everything. Yeah, um, this is my first strike, so I, I was just writing a blog post on my way over here, and I well, there's another learning curve how to deal with you know managing your way through a strike. So. Uh, I've I really deeply in, enjoy the work. I enjoy the constituency work and the legislative work. Uh, I really appreci- appreciate and enjoy the process. I love hanging out with people. I love doing this kind of thing, having conversations about this. So I'm definitely going to be uh, running again. And uh, I think I think the that it's probably a mistake to be correlating what happens federally with what happens provincially. They're vastly different situations. Um, definitely different political parties, even though we carry the same brand and have a lot of the same values. Um, I think as we've seen uh, success in the provincial elections where we haven't necessarily seen that success play out federally, um, I think that there's probably a lot more opportunity for green parties provincially yeah. than there is. Fe- it's a pretty... It's a pretty crowded house federally uh, with, with political parties. Um, that said, I mean, I think that going in, you know one of the things that we have to do, and a, a criticism of the greens, you open the door, is that we have to be able to, we have to be able to carry um, support from pre-election through to the end. And I think what we saw with the BC greens in the 2017 election was the first time that we were polling around 17% heading in we ended up with about 17% coming out. It was the first time that I really saw a Green Party carry the support that they had through all the way through to the end. Um, certainly, I think a lot of the narrative that, that is evolving around environmental issues and climate change is going to benefit the Greens going forward. Um, in the time that I've been in governance for the last 10 years, you know, going from not mentioning it all at the local level to now there's a, a climate caucus at the unity BC municipalities where, you know, local government, people are talking about this where, you know, in the past, if you talked about climate change and you're green, you're granola eating hippie. Yeah. Now, if you talk about it, you are actually talking about, you know, the real thing that's happening. Yeah. Right. So there's been a lot of change in, in quite a short period of time. And I think, I think actually, um, The opportunity for the Greens is around this discussion that we've been having around governance. It it is around uh, having a a real conversation about saying to people in their communities, look, you don't like how your forests are being managed? How about community forests? Mm -hmm. You don't like how your watershed's being managed? How about community watershed boards? And how does the provincial government then, say, get over themselves to the point where it's like not every decision has to be made by some statutory decision-maker in Victoria? But how does that decision-maker work with local communities, locally elected boards to make decisions about drinking water that matter to people locally on the ground? Because we cannot continue to do what they did in Comox and say, okay, shave the walls of that valley, ruin the lake that's providing drinking water, nature's cleaning for everybody free... And let's build a $140 million water treatment plant down here because we couldn't restrain ourselves up there. That kind of insanity is what needs to stop. And it only stops if we don't have someone in Victoria making a decision about the timber value of that valley. We have people on the ground saying, actually, you know what's the most valuable thing for us? Is water. You know, And, and when you put it in those terms, I think probably 100% of people go, yeah, water's pretty important. Yeah. The timber value... Okay, let's have a conversation about that, but you know perhaps clear cutting it is not the best you know way to manage that resource. So, I think you know one of the things that we need to look at in more detail, and it will, and it and it deals and it deals with every single aspect of our society, is is the governance uh, is the governance models that have evolved over time. It's more than getting big money out of politics. It's more than proportional representation. Those are important pieces. Uh, it's more than you know changing the lobbying pieces. It's actually being able to look at our systems and say, you know what, can we govern these areas better and can we include people in those governing processes rather than excluding them, which is what we've been doing. I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
1: I think that's going to ring true for a lot of people.
0: So what are you going to... So... So this ended up being you interviewing me. That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, it's great. We should do it more often. I want to know because I, we kind of tease. You've got an album that you've just cut. It's 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 ready to rock. Yeah. It's ready to go. Yeah. It's ready to folk. Yeah. So um, this whole music industry has changed to the point where I know my my niece makes music and she puts it on Reverb Nation and stuff. And like the whole world has changed. Yeah. So what is uh what does a dude who's just got a new album do yeah, in a world where people aren't buying albums anymore?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we for the first time in, in my life after putting out five records on my own, uh I've got a you know, a team of people, um and we're all looking at it going, you know, maybe this is this is the time to just go for it and, and I'll probably drain my bank account on this one and uh and and just you know I think the lesson now with how to put out a record is you just you have to do it all. You have to do absolutely everything, uh, and and figure out then what works. Uh, and that's one thing that's new is that we have really amazing uh, data. You know, even as a even as an independent musician, I can go look at my Spotify and my Bandcamp and my sales and my streaming, and I can see it all in real time when people are buying, what they're buying, what they're listening to, whether a certain campaign was successful over another one. Um, of course, Facebook's keeping all that data for their own, but, but I got to look at it. And, uh, and so we have that kind of information, which is, which is quite an asset. And, and the other beautiful thing, even though it's challenging because nobody buys albums anymore, it's also in some ways the playing field's been leveled because everyone can have their stuff out. You know, 40 years ago, if you didn't have a major label supporting you, it was going to be almost impossible for anyone for to get any radio play to be able to book tours. And, you know, now I've been touring independently on my own self-booking for six years supporting myself you know I've been a full-time musician touring for for I don't know three and a half four years with nothing else going on Um, and I I think that you know it's again it's kind of both it's like we live in an increasingly amazing world an increasingly liberated and and a a world where the consciousness is really lifting and also a world where where power is getting conglomerated and, and you see Spotify coming up and and in some ways empowering musicians and in some ways screwing them more than they've ever been screwed in their lives and um anyway, so I've got this album and it's going to drop in the spring and and these songs are, you know, really good. And I know you probably expect me to say that, but but uh in the past I've been really critical as many artists are of the work that they're making and this is the first time that I've been able to sit and listen to the songs as much as I have and actually enjoy them through each listen. Um and just to get to a place as well where we've honed our hard craft and I know this is something you're doing uh in, in, in this career path you've taken on, which is we really do get better. And and we were talking about this but I think before we were rolling, just about, you know, how how doing something for ten years, you know, you get good at it. And 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 I'm really just excited to put some of these songs out into the world. There's one called jet lag that that I've just been holding on to for so long that I think is just speaks to everything we've talked about in this podcast today. It's it speaks right to the core of what people are thinking about and stressing about and looking at their kids and going, what kind of future are we gonna have? And and, and to write music that at least scrapes the surface of that, um, it feels really good. It's really cathartic to be able to get that out of my system. Uh, and it's even more rewarding when it resonates with people and can actually maybe become part of a movement or a campaign or um, just people's individual efforts to make the world a better place. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's going to get rocking in the spring. And uh, it's timed well, I think. So, I publish this podcast on a platform called Anchor. Okay. And Anchor
0: was d- set up to be free forever, because they believed in the democratization of podcasting. Nice. Basically, it was just bought by Spotify. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm pretty certain that at some point I'm going to start paying a fee yeah. in order to be able to podcast. But anyway, wow. um, Yeah. So Spotify even took over my little corner of yeah. the podcasting world. Uh, how do people find your stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm Luke Wallace, and, and that's, you know, you find me on Spotify and Instagram as Luke Wallace Music, um, and yeah, that will really get ripping, and you keep your eyes open for, I don't know when we're going to put this podcast out, but uh, but early in, or just after Christmas, we're going to start dropping some songs, and um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking awesome. the time today, and this is fun, thanks for coming to sit in my cabin. And
0: no worries, maybe we can do it again, Yeah, because there's lots to talk about, Yeah, um, and yeah, uh, and yeah, so do you have a website?
1: Yeah, LukeWallisMusic.com.
0: Luke Wallace Music. Did you say that already? Maybe, I don't know. So I have a website. It's ca, And you can find me on Facebook, Adam Olson, Instagram, yeah. Twitter, Adam P. Olson. I don't tweet very much. Uh, but I do blog every day. Uh, I've, I'm almost at a full year wow. of blogging uninterrupted every day. It's been... a uh, I can't wait to hit that year mark so I can maybe take a couple of days off. But anyway, yeah. I it's been a really uh it's been a really rewarding process for me. Yeah. And uh so I think that other than that, we're probably good. Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Absolutely. I think we should do this again and I think we should have a third person. Okay. I think we had a triangle conversation. Listeners, Do you have me. an idea?
0: <sighs> so keep it a secret. Yeah,
1: we'll keep it yeah, but we'll pick the right person. We could really get okay. into it.
0: All right. We'll have a conversation. I love them. Thanks Luke. Thanks Adam. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Luke Wallace. Uh, Certainly an expansive conversation. covered a lot of ground. We had a lot of fun. Definitely going to be trying to schedule another opportunity to talk with Luke. If you'd like to get a hold of him, you can find him at LukeWallaceMusic.com. He's also on Instagram, Luke Wallace Music. I'd like to thank Luke for taking the time uh, to record that conversation with me. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find my blog at AdamOlsonMLA.ca you can email me at adam.olson.mla at leg.bc.ca I'm also on all the social media channels, at least the main ones, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to get a hold of my office, you can call us at 250-655-5600. We're open from Monday to Friday, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Certainly, um, we are there to support you if you need our advocacy, if you need our assistance. So as I always say, goodbye in Senchothan. Until next time, Aqua.